Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about... Doing a deeper dive on negative visualization, but also positive visualization. And these are practices that I think some of our listeners will be already familiar with if they're into Stoic philosophy and practice. Negative visualization is one of the one of the keystones, you could say, right? Uh, most of the great sources out there talk about it, but we, we want to go a little bit further into it. We've talked about it on the show before. We've used it as a practice that we uh, walk people through at the end, but there's, there's so much more to it that we wanted to discuss it a little bit more and talk about how other schools or approaches have looked at visualization as well. Mm-hmm. And so to do a really quick recap of negative visualization, at least within the Stoke School, and what we've spoken about before is a idea of bringing forth the uh, potential outcomes, specifically what would be considered bad outcomes, and um, one looking at them and uh, creating better potential outcomes by like thinking through how you could deal with them, as well as to really realize that these things themselves are indifference and they don't have a value of good or bad, but it's this putting us in these challenging situations that we can then more easily practice our virtue. Yeah, so that that's a good sort of thumbnail sketch of it, and we're going to go a little bit deeper into that uh, a little bit f- later on in the program. But first we want to talk about, well, when we bring up this word visualization, it's already got a lot of baggage associated with it. So we wanted to clarify what we mean and what we what we don't mean by that. So the kind of visualization that we're talking about is using our capacities. And the ones that are the most important are imagination and memory and also our whatever we want to call it, our will, our capacity to choose. Because when we direct our attention to something or we tell our imagination, hey, you know, put this up in front of our or whatever we want to call it, put it on our mental TV or you know, play it for me, we're, we're deciding what to do. And this gets talked a lot about in uh, philosophy, as well as in psychology and in a lot of religious traditions where it's been used. And a prime example of this that I just want to mention, but we're not going to go into too much because there's probably not a lot of people listening because they want to learn about Rene Descartes in particular. But if you look at Rene Descartes' meditations, they're actually designed to do exactly that. They are um, having the person walk through a bunch of things that we can call visualizations. You know, imagine that I don't actually have a body. Well, that's that's using your imagination to try to resolve something. Or imagine if there is like an evil demon that is, is totally devoted to deceiving me and it's this very powerful, um, what would I actually be able to, to get out of that? What, you know, that's where the famous Cartesian cogito comes from. So I just wanted to bring that up as an example of some famous philosophy who we don't usually think about as engaging in spiritual practices or philosophical practices as somebody who, who really centered his work around that. And we're, we're also, we want to be careful not to think about 
visualization as it's often used in, say, graphic design, where, or in, in uh, talking about tech uh, issues, right, where we, we visualize a, a, um, a process or a project and we turn it into something like, like a diagram. You could, in fact, use things like that, and we do, to support the internal visualization, but that's an externalization, right? If you come up with a nice, uh, what do we call those, infographic, right? That's a visualization. Oh, yeah. uh, or we talk about data visualization as well. That's, that's cool, that's useful, but that's not what we're talking about here. The other thing that we're not talking about, and this is gonna lead into a little bit of a, uh, I think a side discussion, um, we're not talking about imagining doing something like playing basketball well. There's studies out there that say that they prove that if you like imagine shooting hoops, you actually get better at shooting hoops. Um, I'm not quite so sure if that's that's the case or not. Um, and we're not thinking about like you know having your best life and putting together uh, vision boards or anything like that. And so this is we wanted to to talk about a few things in particular that were. We're, we're not confusing these practices with. So um, the secret, you wanted to bring that up as a particular example, right? And, well, and so yeah. I think you, you have to tell people <laughs> what it is because not everybody's heard of it. Yeah, what so is this it? is, the secret is one of those, you know, uh, kind of under the umbrella of positive thinking, this idea that uh, you can... Um, create through your mind um, positive outcomes in the real world by, you know, staying positive and focused on your goals in your mind to ignore uh, self-doubt and criticism within your mind and to uh, visualize and concentrate on what you want. And this will somehow result in you eventually having it. And so The Secret is just one of the a number of different uh, books that over the years have kind of had its own different spin on this idea. Another one is Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. Yeah. And and the, the secret itself, like, it's little tick. Actually, did you have something you want to talk about Vincent Peale? No, I was just going to say that there were, there were all, he was, he was the most successful mm-hmm. of, of a whole slew of people who are saying the same kind <laughs> of thing. I mean, I think every generation has somebody coming along and not just somebody but a whole bunch of people coming along and repackaging this idea and what's really different about this and what we're talking about is the notion that by like having a positive attitude you change reality itself yes we're not Which, saying that no we're, we're always working with like how we are going to then eventually react and and how our future selves could potentially react to the reality of the situation, not that the reality of the situation is going to change around us to uh, fit our whims. Yeah, and you know, let's let's pause on that for, for a minute. So part of what's wrong with that idea is the notion that if I could just get like my external reality to change, everything would be great. Mm. And where we're going with this is saying, no, your external reality is probably gonna still suck but you can change how you react to it, how you think about it. You know, you can change yourself. That's that's what ancient philosophy, that's what a lot of religious traditions, that's what psychology, when it's when it's doing its job well, they they help us to do, right? They, you know, not just to be sort of these 
uh, either everything's great or everything's awful, and, and it all depends on whether I've got you know a couple cars out, out front and you know plenty of I don't know bonbons to snack on, <laughs> a beautiful person to, to be involved with, the uh, accolades and and uh, you know affection of those involved in my profession. We could go on and on, right? And and the biggest problem with a lot of those things is that they're things that are that can be put on the hedonic cycle as in you mm. uh you start to lose the happiness of having them and so you're like oh look i'll only be happy once i get a house and a car and then you have them and then now that doesn't fulfill you anymore and so it's like oh i needed another car i need a better car and you're always you know striving to try to get that next thing and uh, part of a lot of the uh, philosophies here are talking about how you can try to get off of that cycle. You know, again, a little bit of a digression, but I think this is quite interesting given those examples. So if you think that like getting the most new and interesting or whatever we want to call it um, model of, of the car out there is going to make you happy, you're right, it's not going to make you happy. And then you're confronted with um, a couple different choices. One would be to get back on what you're calling the hedonic treadmill, right, and just keep grinding away at it and get a newer car and a newer car and a newer car, and that's not really going to work. Another um, thing would be to say, oh, it's all garbage. Let's throw this away, you know, and, and then usually what people do when they do that is jump immediately into pursuing something else, right? I'm going to collect all the comic books or I, I'm going to, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I'll change my romantic life. I'll change my professional life. And it's, it's still this it's still the same hedonic treadmill. What they don't do, and what a third possibility would be, and I think what you know, ancient philosophy, uh, when it's understood rightly, teaches us to do, is to analyze, to say, well, why the hell did I think that getting a car would actually make me happy? What's what's going on with me? You know, what are my assumptions? And then, you know, not to like say, oh, I need to immediately throw them away as soon as you realize how irrational they are. But you keep probing at it. Why am I so irrational? Why do I why do I you know subject myself to these unlikely to work out beliefs? And and if you're told, at least from a very young age, that these are the things that you should strive for. Sometimes it's very difficult to see yeah. the uh, the things that you're bringing to the table uh, with you. That's quite true, yeah. And that's where it can be quite helpful to, I don't know, talk with somebody else or compare notes or be in a, um, a group of some sort where you, you compare your stories and figure out how not only did you, you know, I mean, odds are you didn't screw yourself up until later on. Somebody else screwed you screwed you up for you early on. <laughs> and then you just kind of repeated it over and over again. Right. Uh, so one of the reasons why these, I guess I'd call them charlatans, keep yeah. on uh, repackaging the same thing is this idea of a survivorship bias. And when, you know, oh, survivorship bias. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for example, if I... Uh, have a thousand emails and I send out uh, to 500 of them, uh, this stock is going to go up and then I send another 500 to or to the other 500, this stock is going to go down and on the next day it goes up. Well, I, I throw out the second half and I only choose the first half and I subdivide them and say this other stock will go up or down tomorrow and you keep on doing that. You do that for several weeks and all of a sudden you've got these this group of like maybe 10 people who... Uh, have heard you for several weeks be absolutely correct over and over and over <laughs> yeah. again. And so they think that you are like 
the the, the best stock guru there is, and everyone the, else well, forgets that you were wrong. Well, or you don't even interact with them. There's like, oh, they got wrong, and so you don't even talk to them anymore. And so, uh, with a survivorship bias, you hear these people that are promoting this idea, and those are the ones that just happen to um, become successful. It wasn't because of this. It was uh, okay, the yeah, actual yeah. process. Like, oh, you know, maybe a thousand people tried this. One person succeeded at whatever they're trying to do, but that one's the one that you actually hear about, and so you follow what they're saying. And those will be the testimonials in the book or video or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, that that's actually a, that's a, a great way to explain how these things maintain their hold on, on so many people. Um, and, you know, to, to go back to, to um, what we are talking about here then. So... You, I've used the term spiritual practices. That's something that comes from this guy, Pierre Addo, who wrote a, a you know, set of, of books devoted to philosophy as a way of life. One of them is called Philosophy as a Way of Life, but there's a whole bunch of other ones as well, including a new set of translations out, by the way. By, uh, oh, really? Yeah. Um, Matthew Sharp, and I forget who the other person involved uh, with it was. And I, I only know because I got sent a copy. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't read them yet, but I, I imagine they're going to be quite interesting. But, you know, another really great way of talking about these practices, Michel Foucault used the term technologies of the self. I kind of like that because, and, and I'm not a big like, you know, let's, let's hack our programming kind of guy. I don't, I don't usually use all these tech metaphors. But I do kind of think that our capacity to um, analyze ourselves, oftentimes with help from others, you know, saying, hey, man, you're, you're screwing up. What's wrong with you? Um, I've noticed this about you. And then to use our, our ability to choose, the thing we call the will, this, this capacity for choice, to gradually change our habits and, you know, undermine wrong-headed assumptions, replace them with better assumptions. I think what we are really talking about here is something like a kind of technology that, that allows us to change ourselves for the better. And the, the emphasis there is on changing ourselves, not, not just changing some little bit of ourselves, like whether we you know, recite some mantra to ourselves as we get up in the morning, uh, some positive thinking thing, but, but really working on what makes us tick. And I think one of the questions we do have to keep on asking ourselves is, man, why am I so screwed up? You know? <laughs> the other thing I'll mention, too, with this, and we were talking about this before the show, so going back to things like The Secret, um, if you don't get the results that you want, this kind of ties in with the survivorship bias, the response can always be, oh, you didn't work the system properly, right? Oh, yeah. Now, what's to keep somebody from saying that about stoicism? You right. know, that, that you know, if, if, if things don't go well with negative visualization, so, well, you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between that and the, the guru saying, oh, you didn't work the system right? I think there is. Do you, uh, what do you think it is? I guess I would go to some of the um, the clinical research done for like REBT and CBT. Okay. I'm sorry, rational behavioral therapy and uh, cognitive, cognitive behavioral behavior therapy. therapy. Yeah. Um, uh, and there seems to be a, a correlation, a strong correlation between you know benefits of doing this, uh, at least in mental states, and and maybe there is. 
you know, the, at least it's better than, oh, you're just not doing it right. There is some studies to back that up. That's, that's a good one. I would also say that the Stoics and some of the other um, groups that we're going to talk about can actually say, well, you didn't just not do it right. Here's what you missed out on. Here's why it turns out that way. That's part of what it means to have something like a technology. You can say, this, this thing over here isn't doing its job, or mm-hmm. you, you forgot to add this part here. You know. And so um, I, unlike you, uh, have uh, no problem using technology metaphors because that's kind of the world that I live in. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, you're a tech guy. (laughs) But I was thinking about this and maybe a a different translation instead of technologies, but like techniques or uh, technology comes from the what the the Greek for technique of. Um, correct? Well, uh, it comes from techne, right? Which techne, means yeah. a, a way of being able to produce something. So like pottery yeah. is a techne and medicine is a techne. And, and so is rhetoric, by the way. And so I was thinking along the lines of maybe instead of having the like the really mechanical connotations of it, but bring it back to the techne of the self. Okay. And that might be a, a better way for you to visualize that without being pushed away by the you know, technology. Another translation, well, two other translations that they use in English for techne are craft, which is closer to um, you know the technology aspect of it, but also art. Mm-hmm. They translate it as art. So maybe, you know, when we talk about something being more of an art than a science, mm-hmm. maybe that's kind of along those lines. So we were, um, well, do we want to go? Let's talk about more... the Stoics, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of fancy Latin names that people use. And, I mean, if you want to use Latin to, to sound cool, that that's perfectly fine. You can call it, you know, premeditatio malorum, which just means, you know, thinking about bad things in advance. Or it, it, sometimes it gets called memento mori, which is a little bit more specific because mori is death, right? So being mindful of, of death, which, you know, there, a lot of people are worried about death. So that kind of makes that, sense. That would be like your far end of your negative visualizations well yeah i mean if you're thinking about your own death which is yeah. kind, of, kind of difficult to picture um if you're really trying to do it right you're not just like being like tom sawyer uh you, yeah. you, do you remember that scene oh yeah he, he Although, that's, that's a great scene yeah. <laughs> then shows up you know um, a, a really quick digression. Yeah. One of the, that very same thing is what basically caused the Nobel Prize to be around because uh, Nobel was known as a weapons manufacturer. Right. Right. Uh, what nitroglycerin for uh, producing propellant for all sorts of weapons, and yeah. he was one of the major weapons manufacturers for World War One, and he got. I saw an obit calling him like the the merchant of death. And so he's oh, like, well, yeah. I need to change this. And so he created the, the Nobel Prize. And now we don't remember him as the merchant of death, but the guy who helps promote uh, the forward movement of science. You know, that's really interesting. Um, and I'm going to engage in a little digression, too. So in in my business ethics classes, I think it's Peter Drucker who came up with this distinction between uh, different kinds of virtues. 
There's your resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He doesn't say obituary virtues, but it could be done with an obituary too, right? And, and the idea is basically like your resume virtues are the things that you do to get you through the, the day or the week or the month or the quarter. And they're things that people, you know, praise you for like, oh, they're resourceful. They show up on time. You know, they, they don't steal from the company coffers. Oh, that's very nice, right? And then your eulogy virtues are what you want people to really remember you for after you're dead. So really, after you're dead, nobody cares if you showed up on time. <laughs> you know, that's good. That's good for, for you know while you're employed. But you want to be remembered for these other things, you know. And I think it's kind of a cool, cool distinction. And and if you did like, if you were brutally honest with yourself, and you read, you 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 wrote your own obituary. I mean, you could get other people to be brutally honest with about you too. Um, maybe that would help to change people. I guess, you know, it's, it's sort of like what Ebenezer Scrooge is, Scrooge is going through in um, a Christmas Carol, right? right he gets right. to see how, how badly he's screwed things up and ruined his relations and little Tim dies and sees the open grave and then, you know, he has a, a hallelujah moment and he's like, Christmas is here. <laughs> Let's get a goose. So, but the biggest one there is exactly. Yeah. Let's come back to the stoic. So, yeah. So, um, like you were saying, basic idea is visualizing something. It doesn't necessarily have to be like necessarily a visual image. You could imagine like what it's like to get stabbed, you know, or burned or anything like that. It could be tactile. It could, it could also be about the feelings that you're going to, uh, encounter and um, the idea is you take something, and, and this is where it gets in some of the questions we'll consider later. It doesn't have to be something super major, right? It could be something fairly small to start with. Like, for example, I have this camera that I use for my filming, and, and what if I lost the battery? Well, then, you know, I wouldn't be able to video record. And wouldn't that be a calamity? Because then I couldn't get the videos done that I need to do for my students. And that you could start spiraling, right? And then, you know, my class will be behind. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then, right? So you can, you can start out with, with imagining these things. And then you, you just kind of do what? what? What's different between this, what we're talking about, and panicking or catastrophizing or ruminating the, the first thing is to realize that it's an indifferent that your mm. your happiness and your uh equanimity or your your even mindedness or even killedness are not dependent upon these external things and then so if you say realize that what if somebody what if somebody doesn't feel that way what if you know what if losing this water mm. bottle is really going to screw up my day. Are you saying they are trying to do this technique? Or are they yeah. in the moment? Okay. Um, then the the idea is to like be aware to uh, examine your mind state and why you think that this thing is actually of value. So you have to remind yourself, right? You got to do a bit of self-talk you might say or coaching um it, it could be helpful to have um you know some stoic writings on the side first times that you're doing it you know yeah uh i think there's quite a few examples in marcus aurelius of doing exactly this oh yeah good so point there, there are lots of little 
rather short ones and you can find the ones that reference this particular practice and like, oh yeah, do that and realize, you know, do the deconstruction if you want or, you know, yeah. what what is this this bottle but a bit of water and a bit of plastic and what is plastic but <laughs> a a long dead tree and... <laughs> And a bit of sun, and a, a, you know, and what what right, is a tree? Some energy from the sun, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and is that thing actually all of all that value? And a little bit of blue dye too to make it. You know, oh yeah, or whatever makes it blue. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what makes it blue, but yeah. Well, you know, so so that's that's a good way of of talking about it, and um, you know. It involves a few other things. You can, if you do feel like something is bad, uh, you know, death, for example, I think a lot of people consider that to be a bad thing. You can, you can think about, well, is this really bad? Why do I think it's bad? You know, instead of like just saying, oh, well, I know it's bad. I feel that it's bad. You know, you interrogate those, those feelings while you're doing negative visualization. And you, the big thing is the judgments that we are, uh, right. automatically associating with these things. We have these preconceived notions of things being good or bad, and these things can be interrogated, and that, that is definitely the, the the place of inquiry that you should be asking. Like, why am I feeling bad about this situation? So let me ask you a question, because you've been doing this for quite a while, and I, I have too. Um, and I think one of the questions that would come up pretty early for a lot of people would be, okay, so I, I have this thing and it's kind of, I don't know, scaring me or ticking me off or disturbing me in some way. And I look at it and I'm like, okay, well, it's not as bad as I'm making it out to be. Um, and I realize that I've got, the reason why I'm, I'm viewing it as bad is because I've got these thoughts that I'm thinking about it and I'm doing this kind of automatically. What if that person then says, but I can't stop thinking about it that way? Or I can't help but think about it that way. What would you say to them then? There's two parts of this question because I know that there are certain um, mental conditions which result oh, in right, right. intrusive, uh, cons consistently negative thoughts about certain things. Yeah. Um, and for that, I don't think that just trying to think that away is going to be. Uh, all that successful like you might need some outside help to work through that or potentially there is a, a chemical imbalance that is causing some of these things um outside of that of someone that is maybe a little bit more neurotypical uh then i would definitely say that um you uh could use uh some outside examples of like journaling about why you think this is bad okay. and try to I don't know. <laughs> Investigate get, get a it handle that way. around it, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, when people have something where they're like, well, this is bedrock for me, um, maybe it's not bedrock for you in reality, but it is right now. And mm -hmm. so you got to just keep digging away at it. And then maybe it won't change this time that you do it, but maybe 10 times down the line, you have an aha moment and you're like, oh, wait a second. I actually don't have to think about it that way. I think right. habit plays a big role too, you know? I, I would absolutely agree that yeah. uh, 
especially if you had a entire lifetime of being told that this thing is a good or a bad thing, it it's going to take a lot of work to yeah. try to reassociate those judgments, especially because a lot of our judgments are not like us consciously going through and like, okay, I'm going to add up all the goods and bads about this or pros and cons of this thing, yeah. and I'm going to make a final judgment, I do or do not want this thing. I think that's completely right, and I think we also do tend to have, like, thrust onto us the idea that our thoughts and our feelings just are the way they are, and we're, we're kind of stuck with them, you know, and undoing that itself is often, it takes a lot of work, right? And Yeah, like, I, I like to have the different view of an emotion as emotion is something that happens kind of like a sneeze. Uh, it, okay. it is a, a, a perfectly valid thing. It doesn't mean that you have to follow through in, you know, uh, whatever that, uh, you know, emotion has presented you. I was laughing because I was thinking about like a Kleenex and sneezing into it. <laughs> you know, is there something like that for sadness or anger or joy, you know? Yeah, I was like, oh, I, I sneezed anger, and it's like, oh, no, it's like attacking me, and it's can, uh, infecting my brain. I now have to follow it and go Yeah, you know, it's, it can be, be contagious for other people, too, right? Right, yeah. yeah. I'm liking this uh, metaphor a lot more. So actually, that's a good place to talk about emotions in this, right? And there's two things I wanted to bring out with respect to negative visualization. One is that it, it, if you're doing it right, it should provoke some emotions, at least at first because that's why you do it, right? right? So what are the different emotions? Anxiety and fear is a really big one for it, but I, I think anger is another good one as well. If you're somebody who needs to manage their anger, you can do negative visualization. Shame or humiliation, you know, embarrassment, um, aversion or disgust. And then when I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, well, there's sadness and grief to, to consider. But also boredom. Boredom's an emotion, right? And, and a lot of people can't stand being bored or feeling like there's nothing going on. And so you could imagine boring situations if, if that's really a problem for you. And then that would help you to deal with them better. And then I thought, well, also desire. You know, if you think to yourself, oh, I have such a hard time controlling my sexual desire or my desire for food or, or desire for these these other things, um, maybe that's something to do negative visualization with. I, I haven't done that myself, but I, I could see how somebody could. And so when you're visualizing the thing, you think about the, the disturbing factor and, you know, emotions will be produced. So if you think about dying and think about dying in a very vivid way, that probably should scare you or it might make you angry too, <laughs> you know, or just sad, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And, and when, you, or, when you have that or emotion. Or your family members. Yeah. Well, that's where the grief, I think, could come up, right? Yeah. Uh, but also fear. You're right. Um, so when you, when, you, when you picture that, you'll feel the emotion, right? And then what do you do with that emotion? Um, you allow yourself to feel it. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you do with the emotion and negative visualization? Uh, and then you investigate it. You know, you 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 realize that you can be okay with the emotions as they arise, and yeah. and realize that you they're not a, a horse that you have to be uh, tied to. That as long as you every time that that emotion arises, you can say okay. I'm feeling this, 
this would if I ha- was not investigating it, then I would not um then I would act in this way. Should I actually act in this way and yeah. try to decouple that action from the experience of happiness and emotion? So what is what does that do for us then? Um do we feel uh, the emotion less over time? Uh, for for me specifically, I would say for mo- most, you know, if you are decoupling that judgment from things that you previously thought were bad, then the emotion tends to arise less, especially if it's like anger or sadness about the loss of something. Yeah. So what else what else happens in negative visualization? I think there's there's a few other important you, components. You definitely become more resilient to the you know the vicissitudes of life, or you know it's just the the regular inter ins and outs. You know the easiest one is uh, probably just driving in traffic. That's one of the first ones that I noticed. Is like there's there's constant jostling and go and bumping yeah. or you know or close calls going on, and you just. Uh, if you can pull away that anger component, you can much more easily deal with the day and the challenges that are put forth in front of you. Driving can be scary too. Actually, <laughs> right? Yeah, I remember it was total, you know, digression. Before they changed all the highways here in uh, Milwaukee, I was living over on Farwell Avenue, and I was working at a place out in the suburbs. So I had to get on to 43 and then go on to 94. And the way things were set up at that point, um, in order to go the way that I was going, I had to essentially every morning veer across three lanes of traffic in the space of a mile. And this is like, you know, morning rush hour traffic. And I, I wasn't, you know, I was in my 20s, so I wasn't as an experienced a driver as I am now where I, I, I could probably like do that while drinking my coffee and stuff. But um, I found it kind of scary when I was doing that, you know, and I, I, I didn't have stoicism as a help. I mean, I could have like done some visualization things in the, in the morning because every morning I was getting up and I, fortunately the job didn't last that long because it was a mortgage company and they changed the interest rates and they, they went under. I was so happy that they <laughs> that their company failed. It was a temp job, and and but I would I would get in my car and I'd be like dreading this terrible interchange that I would right. have to make every morning. <laughs> so are you? I guess you're. You have some gratitude. You don't have that job anymore, and that's also true. Negative visualization provides. It would have helped if I would have done that. Yeah. Yeah, and that. The negative visualization provides that, you know, a bit of sense of gratitude for the reality of things are. And, and yeah, if we do it right, it can help. It, we don't have to, like, completely eliminate emotion. We could replace emotions that we don't want to feel with emotions that we, we do want to feel. It could be gratitude. It could be joy, I think, as well, right? Right. Like, I'm joyful that I did not get angry at the situation that used to be. <laughs> causing me so much anger or uh, fear. So that that actually brings us to another aspect of what happens when you're doing negative visualization. And the Stoics talk about this quite a lot. We, you know, we experience our emotion, we visualize something, we also discover, or we could like maybe force ourselves to think about the resources that we have to deal with the thing at hand. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we can't turn it off and realize that 
people cutting us off in traffic isn't them, you know, being jerks to us. Uh, they're they're just doing what they 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 do, and it's it's you know, maybe we can't stop like that anger response, but we can at least figure out what resources we have to deal with it. You know, like we can say, well, I don't have to honk my horn at that that jerk, <laughs> or try to cut him off, or anything like that. Um, or if we're thinking about the fear of death, you know, maybe maybe we're still going to view death as a bad thing, and um, you know, feel bad about it in some way. But th- we don't have to feel too bad about it. We don't have to dwell on it. We could think about: Do I have the resources if if I'm going to face, I don't know, getting sick and dying. I just turned 50, so, you know, um, maybe 51 is all I get. Who knows, right? Who knows? Um, so if I imagine that to myself, I could think about, well, could I, could I deal with that? I mean, my dad did. He, he died when he was 36 in a hospital. Um, right. And he seemed to have had a, a pretty decent death, as they say. Um, this- reminds me of people who when faced with large challenges um will shrink away from those large challenges and focus on things that are mundane and easily controllable like choosing the 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 color of the carpet in their apartment instead of you know uh a death of the family or like uh, a big financial malady yeah what do you think about that well i think that doing um negative visualizations allows us to uh put these things into the the categories of indifference which allows us to even when things are going incredibly badly actually be more present and uh make the best decisions instead of poor decisions so for example um i was an absolute wreck when my father died and i was kind of useless in in helping finish up the uh funeral plans and uh, thank gosh for my brother to come in and was able to help me out with that because i was in in such a state that i was failing at this process that i really needed to get done yeah i i mean i had something similar happen when my mom died i was 29 and my sister was 27 and pregnant so, you know, we had to handle all this stuff, and, and she was just not, you know, not up to it, you know. And there, were, there was such a mess, all these different things that had to be found and dealt with. And, you know, a lot of these experiences that we have, it's the first time around we're doing it, right? Right. Yeah, it was. I was 24, I think, wow. when my father died. And so, yeah. Yeah, just... that's, that's even tougher. You know, I, I had a student... Um, in one of the places where I taught, this was several years ago, and she came up to me about halfway through the semester, and she she was only I think twenty or so, and she she was uh, apologizing for having been absent a couple times, and she said, um, you know, I'm really sorry, I'm going to get caught back up on work, but we had a death in the family. And as I asked her more questions, I found out it was her mother who died, and her mother was a single parent. And um, it was just her and a younger brother, and um, like a grandfather who had to be taken care of as well. And oh. so as a, as a 20-year-old, she was dealing with, with, you know, like keeping the household together and paying the bills and figuring out how to get, get her mom buried and all that. And I was like, wow, that's... 
you know, I mean, I, I tried reaching out to her. She, she, she didn't finish the class, of course, and I was not surprised at all because uh, that's, that's so, such a, a difficult situation, yeah. And, you know, not finishing a class, not a big deal at that, you know. Uh, fortunately, it was, it was at a place where the classes weren't that expensive. So what are some of the, the problems that can arise with this practice? So this is where it gets really interesting. Um, I think a lot of people out there, especially in the sort of, you know, let's popularize stoicism kind of, kind of world, they look at this as a magic bullet that's good for everybody in every situation. It's not. You know, as you were pointing out, people who are overcome by compulsive thoughts, maybe negative visualization. If, if you're going to like, you know, visualize something and it's going to be a trigger and you're going to go down this spiral, maybe don't do negative visualization then. Maybe do other things, right? Um, or at least not by yourself. I have someone there to help you talk through that. Right. Maybe maybe we need something like a coach or a community or we, we do it as uh, groups together. Um, you know, I, I think some people slip, some people don't understand the difference between negative visualization where you're actually trying to work on stuff and just rumination mm -hmm. where you're just kind of circling around a thought. The Stoics are not saying make yourself feel like crap for the sake of feeling like crap. <laughs> you know? uh, and maybe some people use it in order to, to be kind of ascetic and, and you know, self-flagellate as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the Stoics would like that. Um, what are some other some other issues that you can see? Um, uh, especially if you have um, some like PTSD type things that if you bring this up, they could really tap into things that you'd need you know uh, a much stronger guide you know therapy to start to broaching. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, which, is, which isn't to say that somebody with trauma couldn't do any negative visualization, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be prudent to do it wouldn't be prudent to try to like think that you're being courageous by taking, you know, head on whatever it was that traumatized you. Mm -hmm. And then like, I'll do some negative visualization about that. Maybe maybe instead you do it with, you know, um, I don't know, public speaking or uh, the meal that you're making not turning out well or something where there's much lower stakes. Right. And the whole idea is to kind of investigate our judgments about these things. And yeah. if you can't get to the place where you're able to investigate, then this is not going to actually help you. Yeah. Another thing that I think can be a problem is thinking that because you've done some negative visualization exercises, now you're ready to walk into the situation, whatever it's been that you've been pre prepping for, and you're going to be totally a-okay. It's sort of like, you know, in martial arts, doing a bunch of forms and a little bit of sparring with people, and then, you know, walking across the street to the bar and being like, all right, who wants to fight, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's, that's, that's the best way to do things. It reminds me of the... Uh, the map is not the terrain. Oh, right, right. Yeah, from Which, the... Um, uh, what? There was a movement that talks about that all the time, and they're still around in New York. Um, there was a guy, uh, Hayakawa, who was associated with them. Uh, it was a, it, the linguists who were... Linguists and psychologists who'd, who'd constantly talk about that. Um, so, but the, the basic idea here is that you know, a map is... Institute for General Semantics. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar, 
but the the idea is a useful idea which is that you know a map is a lossy version of the reality that you're living in and so anytime that we are visualizing things we will there's we can't visualize every different permutation and there's the life is going to throw something at us and yeah. it's it's not going to always work but it's better than doing nothing at all true yeah and so i think that's kind of a good segue into talking about well how, how do you actually do this um you know should one have like a particular time of the day to do negative visualization or you know yeah i think it's easy to either set up morning or night to I'd actually say morning is probably really good because you can think Why? of like, because you're like prepping for the day. Okay. And you're like, okay. Uh, I can think of like, okay, there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, annoying people on the road. Um, and then I'm going to go into work and I've got to have, I'm going to have all these coworkers that like maybe are jostling for permission or position to, you know, get a, a better promotion over me. And so they, they might be, you know, backstabbing and whatnot. And, uh, and maybe my, you know, just you present it as if you're like boss hates you and all Man, you these, got a rough like, job. <laughs> yeah. But that's the whole point of negative visualization. Yeah. That, you know, once you actually go there, you're uh, if you don't have these things, then your better day is already better than what you were expecting it to be. As yeah. well as if these things do happen, you have at least some work towards dealing with them in a more calm and forward moving way yeah and and i think sometimes maybe if you know you're about to go into something that's going to be difficult for you 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 could do negative visualization like you take five minutes and you know you don't go to the meeting right away Uh, and this is so we wanted to talk about a few examples of this i had a client who was a really high performer he was a uh, CIO of a major corporation, and he would go into these high-pressure meetings. And he, he wasn't the normal anger management kind of person that I work with, where we have to teach him like not to blow up at people and not to like you know blame everybody else for their anger. He, he, he really had it put together. But what he found is that in these situations, they'd all kind of poke at each other, and he'd get a little bit, he'd get angry. Not so angry like he'd like, you know, slam his hand down or something like that, but it was enough to like make him lose his edge because anger makes you a little bit blindered. And he didn't want to do that. So I, I suggested, well, let's, let's, you know, how about before you go into the meeting, you take three minutes and you do some negative visualization and you think about how this, this guy in particular is probably going to try to get you ticked off and how you're going to respond to that, you know? And he found it was very helpful for him. What are some other examples that we... Uh, relationships between two individuals and one wanting um, the other one to do something for the other, but are maybe remiss to actually ask them. And then they get angry when they don't do things. Difficult conversations, right? Everybody's got some, some meetings or conversations they're not looking forward to. Mm -hmm. When I was, I'll I'll tell you something kind of, this is kind of uh, funny to talk about at this point in time. You'd never guess this from today. When I was, In in high school, my freshman year, I was so shy when it came to um, the opposite sex that I had a hard time calling girls on the phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I have to, like, steal myself to do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, what's so, what's so scary about that, right? Well, so you're, that's, you're feeling that fear and anxiety from that. Exactly. And, uh, and there's so many other people who do that. And, and it could be like, you know, not just relationships. It could be like, well, there's this, um, this pressing business thing that I need to take care of, but I don't know if I want to send this email or not. And then you don't send the email, and now it's like a week later, and you're like, well, I'd better write, write a longer email, you know, to explain why I didn't email right away. And then you don't do that. And it, it gets it gets to be like this big thing. Right. And then what do you right. do? You just bury it. <laughs> <laughs> or like uh, grief or potential grief of like you've got like a, a older relative that that's a good one. Yeah. And you're like. I really need to call or I need to go visit, but you're you're so like worried about like what it's gonna feel like when they actually die that your entire perception of their interaction oh. with them is always in this like pre-death stage instead yeah. of actually enjoying the life of the person when yeah. you can enjoy it. That is a big problem. You're right. A negative visualization I think could actually help out quite a bit with that. And in a, in a way, it makes you able to be. You know, uh, we talk about the Stoic virtues, right? Justice, prudence, courage, temperance. It makes you able to be a juster person in, in the sense of being able to give other people what they deserve. You know, your aged relative, um, you know, what they don't deserve is you bringing all your hangups <laughs> that get in the way <laughs> of actually having a human interaction with them, you know? Right. You just want somebody to be nice and visit them. So, and, yeah. and I, I'd even say it's even greater if it's like you have a a sick and dying child like mm, that's, that's right yeah that's even a, a, like at least the the person that is old kind of has a better ability to realize that they're at the end of their life whereas that of a child would have a much more difficult time understanding what is happening you know it's interesting too i mean this could be used for parents who are dealing with things that they kind of feel you know, like when they have to give the, the talk about sex to their kids, right? Mm. I mean, I, I oh, remember, yeah. you know, my mom was so embarrassed that she she actually, uh, she, she, she just like buy books and slip them into my bookshelf. Like, you know, I was supposed to find them and think like I'd put them there or something. Uh, <laughs> I had the any. same thing happen. Oh, really? <laughs> that's so funny. But I mean, you know, if you think about it, that's that's not a very effective mode for, for dealing with this stuff that you really is, is very important and you, and you need mm -hmm. to deal with, you know. And so it, it could be that or it could be finances or it could be like, uh, I don't know, all, all, all sorts of other things, you know. Yeah. In order to be there for your kids, maybe negative visualization is something you'd want to be able to do. Or if they're getting bullied and, you know, you're going to actually go and talk to the parent of the kid who's doing the bullying, odds are that parent is probably a jerk, you know. So it's not going to be a pleasant conversation. So maybe you do some negative visualization before that too. Right. Also, I love you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> so I did want to talk, we were going to talk a little bit about positive visualization and so we should talk very briefly about the Epicureans. The Epicureans are a different school than the Stoics, and they don't do, they would actually say it's bad to do negative visualization because the Epicureans think that a pleasant life is, is what you want. So why would you subject yourself to these negative emotions? Instead, you, you should think about happy things, things that you enjoyed. And this is a way to actually get more pleasure out of a situation. So imagine like you had a candy bar, all the candy bar was so good, but it's in the past. Well, bring it in your memory into the present and think about how great that candy bar was. Maybe tough to do with a candy bar. Maybe you could do it with a concert. 
you know, there you or, go. or a relationship or something like that. And that, that way you can have a, a more pleasant life. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, I mean, do the Stoics have anything like that? And I think, yeah, actually they do. They have some positive visualization things. Um, Epictetus, at one point, he's talking about, you know, you're going to try to resist some pleasure, uh, not giving into it. Think about how good you're going to feel down the line having resisted it, you know, how much better off you're going to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a kind of positive visualization exercise. Right. As well as the progress in changing your values or you're like, oh, I realized that I got angry at this thing. And and maybe uh, in the future, I won't be I won't like, you know, go off the rails on on the situation that is constantly, you know, uh, kick me in the butt and like putting me down like if i'm angry at work and then uh, no one wants to actually work with me uh that's that anger is causing me a, a negative outcome then if i can figure yeah. out how not to get angry then i can maybe have some positive outcomes from doing things a little bit more virtuously yeah and so do you think that's the sort of thing that maybe a person should also do like once a day or at, at certain given times like sort of a thinking about how, how they're going to make progress? Or, or is, that, um, is that sort of like doing wishful thinking? I, I think if you're going to do it regularly, it, the, the period must be much larger. If you're doing that daily, I think it's not going to be particularly useful because you're, okay. you're anticipating something. And uh, like they say, there's, there's studies about saying that you have less... Um, motivation to do something once you've told other people to right, do uh, right. it and so you're telling yourself that you're going to do this thing and it's going to be great and then you have maybe less motivation to actually do the negative visualizations itself okay yeah that makes that and, makes a lot of sense and one thing that you could potentially do if you want to take the negative visualization to like even a a greater level is you could actually put yourself in situations that would have made you feel uh, negatively in other ways. And so, uh, for example, uh, get a, a onesie and walk through a mall could be something of like, <laughs> I don't care what I look like and I don't care how people are reacting to me. And you can visualize that. But there's another thing of actually experiencing That's it and awesome. putting yourself in that particular situation. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's a that's a great one. Or what is that thing that you could buy on TV? The Snuggly. It's basically yeah. like a blanket and a and a onesie at the same time. Snuggy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we had a few questions that we we found about this. I think maybe we'll probably, unless we blow through them real quick, we'll probably only mm-hmm. have time for for one. So um, pick your poison. Which one should we take? Uh, the second one. Okay. Do you want to read it, or you want me to? Uh, sure. So we're thinking about bad things before they happen, and if they do, how situations could go wrong, the worst outcome given circumstances, etc., all for the f- purpose of better preparing ourselves. I believe I understand the motivation behind the teaching. If I am incorrect in my understanding thus far, please let me know. When I lose the value in the idea. Where I lose value in the idea is that there is an unspoken assumption that uh, what could happen, whatever it may be, is bad. Forget not 
that it is this simple philosophy telling us to love our fates or amor fate, which is teaching I have come to really, which is the teaching I've come to really appreciate. We are assuming that this bad thing we are preparing for is actually bad and are trying to fix the problem when it may not necessarily be bad at all. A picture, a picture, a situation of two Stoics talking, one picturing what could go wrong and the other telling him that whatever will happen can only be dealt with when it is in the present moment and dealt with in proper using the Stoic teachings. Let me clarify, do not deep down believe that there is a place for premeditato malorum in daily life. I just need help finding it if it does have a place in my daily life. Yeah, so what do you make of this? Uh, it seems like he's he's missing this really core part that um, it's not that where you're dealing with it as it doesn't matter because it's not in the present moment. It's that it is most likely in a different and it's the the judgment that he's not actually making here um and it's not a, a temporal position yeah i i think that there's maybe a little bit too much stress laid on when especially when it comes to popularizing stoicism about like being in the moment man you know it's kind of kind of new agey sort of stuff when really what we're supposed to have is like an integrated present that's connected with the future that we're you know looking towards and, and getting ready to, to deal with and a past that actually kind of makes sense um, but I think there's something else in here too so I, I, I read this as this person is saying um, we don't need to do any sort of negative visualization or premeditatio malorum because the things aren't actually bad according to stoicism and that's that's correct. You know, I mean, Stoics are saying that a lot of these things, like you know, for example, losing a job, right? If I lose my job, I'm not going to have any money. The Stoics would say, okay, that's a that's an indifferent. That's a preferred indifferent, but it is still an indifferent. It, it doesn't make you a bad person to lose your job. It doesn't make you a good person to have your job. But you know, what you do with your job obviously does does matter quite a bit. And. I think the mistake that's that's made here is not realizing that the reason why we need to do negative visualization is because even if we've heard this stoic doctrine about the indifference, that doesn't mean that we actually believe it. And that's part of how screwed up we are. You know, right. we think that things that aren't bad are are, are actually bad. I, I think we're getting low on, on, on time. Um, so so <laughs> we got to bring I, this to a close. I, I just want to bring in one last thing about belief and I, I um, come to the conclusion that we do not choose our beliefs that I can't like believe that I am uh, I don't know a unicorn uh, I have to come to these conclusions and only once we are uh, presented with enough evidence that this is not the way something is do we then change our beliefs well, that's that's good to close on I, I think we can yeah. skip the, the, the quote and just say yep. thanks to everybody for listening Thank you.